ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, this is The Money. I'm Richard Aidey. Australia's a services economy. Most of us earn our living in just six industries. Healthcare and social assistance alone employs 15% of us, and retail a shade under 10%. For jobs, for the economy, services are the main game. But they can only exist, they can only be delivered if we have actual stuff. Energy, technology, machines, transport. And for all of those, you need materials. It's that hard, fundamental truth that Ed Conway explores in his book, Material World, a substantial story of our past and future. Ed, how did you get into this? I think to some extent it's because I live in such a kind of ethereal world. I work in in journalism and my life is completely uh, dematerialised. I spend a lot of time talking to people, explaining stuff. So part of this comes from the fact that I just realised I just didn't have the least idea about how we make things. But I kind of had this nagging suspicion that in order for my seemingly ethereal existence to work, you know, in order for my ability to communicate with people, to use spreadsheets and computers and smartphones and just have a house that has concrete and steel, I kind of felt like that must start somewhere. But I just didn't know where. And you know, I'm, I, I cover economics as a day job. And the weird thing is, when you look at things like gross domestic products, a vanishingly small proportion of it is stuff like concrete and copper and steel. And yet, without that stuff, nothing else will mm. work. And so there's there's a bug within economics um, that I wanted to kind of get to the bottom of. And then, you know, the, the further I went, the more fascinating it got. Yeah. Well, you talk about six different materials. How did you draw the line on this? Because you you, you could make a case for something like coal or aluminium or cobalt, mm-hmm. but you don't. I, I kind of just had to, to draw the line somewhere. And where I drew it was, these are the things without which we wouldn't be in enormous trouble. So, you know, aluminium is incredibly important. You wouldn't have flight without aluminium because most planes are made of, uh, of aluminium, although increasingly they're, they're made of other things like kind of carbon fibre and, 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 and plastics and things. However... Steel, we we just can't, you can't construct anything without steel. You can't make machines without steel. It is so, so central to all of our lives. And you could say the same thing about concrete. And I, that's one of the, the kind of products, I guess, of, of sand. You know, I take a kind of wide definition of sand. And these things are so essential to our existence that if they weren't around, then civilization as we know it would, would kind of grind to a halt. And in, like in practice, these six materials, so sand, salt, uh, iron, copper, oil, and lithium, to some extent, they're a kind of a gateway allowing you mm. to see the spectrum of different things around us that, that, that really matter. But it's not an exhaustive list. There, no. there are other materials that are available, but this is a pretty good start in just trying to understand the material basis of our existence. I have to say, Ed, that, that it was the first two that were the real surprise to me. So sand and salt. Mm. So if we we start with sand, why is it mm. so vital? Well, I mean, sand is where glass comes from. And without glass, we don't have optics. And without optics, we don't have an extraordinary amount of different things in our lives that we depend on. The chapter on sand, I talk about silicon chips. Well, you can't make silicon chips without incredibly precise lenses, which are made in part from sand because they're made from glass. 
you don't have the internet if you don't have sand because what does the internet travel on well it's not an ethereal thing again like you kind of think you just turn on your smartphone and there's the internet well the vast majority of distance traveled over the internet is traveled over fiber optics and those fiber optics are made in large part from glass which is made from sand so sand is very much underrated as as a a form of material that we that we all depend on and in, in part the story with sand is here is something incredibly plentiful. And now, obviously, there are lots of different types of sand, and I deal with many mm. of them, you know, the different grades of sand, different purity, different types of silica, and so on and so forth. So there is a complexity here. But even so, sands of various types, we take them, and then we turn them into incredible things. And we've been doing it for thousands of years. You know, glass was one of the first amazing high technologies that humankind ever created. And yet today, we're still improving our ability to make it. And the same thing with silicon chips. We take something... We take the silicon out of the ground. It goes through crazy, extraordinary transformations. Amazing amounts of energy uh, are implemented to try to turn that into a silicon chip. And eventually you end up with something with transistors on on a semiconductor inside your smartphone. Transistors that are so small that they are literally invisible. They're invisible. I mean, that because they are smaller than the wavelength of visible light. And that is the triumph of human manufacturing these days. And yet, because I think this this stuff is, you know, beneath the cover of a, a smartphone, perhaps we don't think about it as much as we should. And also, because we don't understand that it begins its life as a hunk of rock pulled out of the ground, again, we don't really, I think, appreciate as much as we should do that this is one of the most incredible achievements that humankind has ever made. And then, and then salt, I mean, perhaps even more underrated. We kind of just think yeah, of yeah, something yeah. you sprinkle on your food, don't we? But it's got a kind of hidden life beyond that. Well, I'll get to, I'll get to salt in a minute, but just a couple more things about sand. And, and you know, this is the geography nerd in me. I, <laughs> I was struck by how in, in several occasions, and especially with the making of silicon chips, this vital thing, the only material that will do comes from a particular place. There's a quarry in northern Spain, which is where it all begins for these these fist-sized bits of high-purity silicon quartz and a small town on the Blue Ridge Escarpment in North Carolina to make the the, the quartz crucible in which to melt the high-purity silicon. And without these places, these stuff in these places, you can't do this thing. Yeah, and, and particularly spruce pine, that last one you mentioned, there is no other place on this planet where we've discovered as good a quantity of what's known as high purity quartz and without high purity quartz you cannot melt down your silicon into that incredibly pure form it's it's the kind of the purest and this is not really an exaggeration in this case it is the purest thing that humankind is capable of making but you can't make it very pure if you don't have this amazing quartz in which to to melt down your silicon which later becomes the silicon chips. And there was someone that told me, someone who worked in this particular mine in North Carolina, who said, if you flew over that with a crop duster loaded with a particular chemical and sprayed it over the the quarry, you would basically shut down the computer industry in the space of six months. I mean, people would eventually try and find an alternative source of this thing, and I'm sure they would succeed. But it just shows you how fragile this global economy that we're inhabiting is. And that's not the only place. You know, there's plenty of other places where there are links in these various, I guess, supply chains that are so important. And because, again, 
I don't think we spend all that much time thinking about how the stuff in our pockets actually gets there. And I think we've been encouraged to be less curious about it because it just turns up. It just turns up. It's the one of the magic, the wonders of globalization. Because we don't think about that, we're, I guess, less aware of these chains, or at least up until recently, we were less, we were yes. less aware. So when I started writing it, you know, it was just before the semiconductor kind of supply chain crisis um, post-COVID. But these things in the face of a possible new Cold War, are all important all over again. So the material world kind of strikes back. Come back to that if I can. We haven't even mentioned the small matter of concrete, but we do have to keep moving. <laughs> I do want to talk about salt because even more of a surprise to me than sand. And turns out that extracting mm. salt is still an important industry because so many other things depend upon it. You know, for a long time, the UK produced, I think, the, the most salt in the world. But the ironic thing is actually we in the UK, even though we don't pay much attention to it now, we produce more salt than we ever did before. And part of the reason is it's not for the stuff that's sprinkled on your food. The vast majority of salt that comes out of the ground today is actually used in the chemical sector. So 90% of all pharmaceuticals have some chemicals that come from salt. Um, the chlorine that purifies our tap water, that comes from salt as well. The caustic soda you use to, to make things like paper, that comes from salt. The soda ash we use to make glass, it comes from salt. And actually, it's very hard to find any primary important chemical that we use in making stuff, you know, just making anything basically, that didn't begin with salt. Once upon a time, it was seen as this amazing kind of health chemical, which of course it still is, you know, because it helped keep people alive. Romans were given uh, a ration of salt, the, the, the soldiers were given a ration of salt, and that's how we get the word salary. Even today, we still use salt to make the chemicals that are helping to keep us clean and to keep us alive. We still use salt to get the chemicals which help us to create plastics and to, even to make silicon chips or to make lithium ion batteries. Salt is still there. And I, I kind of love that, the fact that we are still treading the same kind of salt roots uh, using the same materials that our ancestors did. But we're just slightly more oblivious, I think, about yes. the fact that we're doing it. And well, you, you actually point out that many of the world's sort of pharma and chemical companies are on these ancient salt roots. Totally, yeah. If you look at a map, they are there, right there where the salt is. And that's not by accident. It's because they're using the salt. You know, we are still mining large amounts of salt. You know, you're not going down there with pickaxes. Mostly it's something called solution mining, where you, you send down some water and it melts away uh, or it dissolves the salt and the salt comes back up in the form of brine. But that is still mining and we are doing it at a rate that is unprecedented. And the funny thing is actually we're doing it quite a lot in, in countries which don't think of themselves as, as big miners. But because it's salt, because no one pays much attention to it, uh, because actually very few people work in the sector these days, and that's another overarching theme of this book. Part of the reason this stuff is quite small when it comes to our total GDP, part of the reason very few people work in it is because we've become so good at getting this stuff out for so little money that you just don't think about, you know, the provenance of your iron ore. I guess maybe you do a bit more in Australia, but you don't think about the provenance of, of basic materials to the extent that you did in the past, because we are just amazing at doing it at scale and making bigger and bigger holes, which of course has another uh, environmental consequence that we're dealing with right now. Today on The Money, my guest is Ed Conway, who works for Sky in the UK and he's the author of Material World, which is this look at these six different materials that turn out to be so vital to our lives. We've talked about just a couple of them. We won't be able to do all of them. One of the things that keeps coming up is this sort of economic foundational principle is that price is not the same as value. Yeah, 
and a kind of similar related word, but one that we don't want very good at in the world of economics is dependence. So, you know, if you look at GDP, a lot of the gross domestic product of, of a country, slightly more so in, in places like the US and, and Europe than, for instance, Australia, but to some extent anyway, a lot of that GDP is things like financial services, professional services, it's tech, it's social networks. The great irony, though, is that that kind of 90% or whatever it is of the economy simply couldn't function without concrete. It couldn't function without the copper that is going into service centers. It couldn't function without the semiconductors you're putting inside there. It couldn't function without the steel we're using to make the frames of the, the buildings and to, to use them to make the machinery that we're making everything else with. Mm. So there is an enormous part of the economy depends on some other bit of the economy. And yet there is no way, there is no prism you can look at in GDP that, that kind of tells you, okay, well, in that case, what is the most important of all of these sectors? But you'd have to assume if you're talking about sheer dependence, it's the stuff that keeps us alive. It's the stuff that keeps us, you know, housed and inhabited. It's the stuff that helps kind of, you know, helps us get to work. It's the stuff that makes computers uh, actually work. It's energy. These things actually have outsized importance but that importance isn't really reflected in either GDP or our general discourse about the economy. And that, that I guess, is the paradox I kind of began with when I was starting to think about this book. How do we understand that? What are, you know, when I was trying to come up with what the materials were that we most depended on, which is, I guess, the thesis of this book, it wasn't like there was a spreadsheet that you could start with that says, okay, well, here they are. Because it just doesn't work that way. Mm. We just measure transactions and we measure how much you pay for things. And you pay, actually, we pay a lot of money for, for things like Facebook. Well, indirectly, we pay a lot of money for online services. Uh, we pay a lot of money for our iPhones. We don't think about uh, how much money we're paying for, for copper. And yet, without the copper inside all those devices, we don't have electricity. And without the fiber optics, we don't have the internet. So I, I just had to talk to a lot of people to try anecdotally to understand, OK, what materials really do kind of underlie everything else. And that's why you end up with something random like salt, because it is just it's a building block and yes. it pr produces other building blocks. But the same thing, you know, iron, it's not very sexy, uh, but it's, it is if it's not made of iron, it's made with iron. Every tool we ever use is made from steel one way or another everything that you touch every day if it's not actually steel there was probably some steel machinery that was used to make it there's lots of invisible ways in which yes. seemingly boring seemingly unpromising materials actually have a bearing on our lives we can't talk about everything and we're not going to talk about iron <laughs> i do want to touch briefly on copper i like the mm. phrase you came up with which is civilization's nervous system no copper no nervous system yeah. And it's it's because I talk a little bit in this book about energy transitions. And I think they, they're really important. We're, we're talking right now, aren't we all, about the energy transition we're in right now when we're going to, towards renewables. But there have been a lot of these transitions in the past, you know, when we discovered how to use coal and when we discovered how to use oil and so on and so forth. That that moment, you know, at the turn of the, the 20th century, where we really kind of started to electrify everything, are still quite an underrated transition when it comes to, to our lives, partly because, you know, electricity allowed us to do all these amazing other things. Uh, it allowed us to create devices It allowed us to have light, you know, plentiful light is such a such a revolution at the time. But what it also allowed us to do is to completely revolutionize the way that we kind of designed our factories. So in the past, factories were mostly driven by steam. When 
electricity came along, they began to be driven by electrical power. And, and that meant you could have machines doing all sorts of different things. There's people who who estimate that it took many decades, but that created multiples more productivity. The world got so much, so much better off because we were able to leverage electricity. And that was, of course, you know, 100 and a bit years ago. But it was all dependent on copper. It was dependent on getting enough copper. And actually, for a long time around then, there were some big question marks. A lot of people were asking, are we going to have enough copper? Are we going to run out of copper? And the amazing thing is throughout history, we've got better and better mm. at getting copper out of the ground. So these supposed crises about running out of stuff, they never actually happened because we just got so much better at getting more copper out of the ground. But that leaves us in a kind of ironic situation because a lot of the copper mines, you know, I don't know if you've been to a copper mine, but they're pretty enormous. Yes. You know, they are they are vast places. And I went to what is, I think, known as the world's biggest man-made hole, this this mine in Chile called Chuquicamata. It's it's so big that it's basically like a canyon, and it's all man-made. Um, you can barely see to the bottom. It's more than a kilometre down. And this place has been going since those early days. You know, So that, that was providing the copper that was making that first electrical age happen, You know, the Edison age. This place is still turning out enormous amounts, You know, tons and tons, millions of tons of copper, which in turn is going to go towards providing the copper that we need to make offshore wind turbines because you need enormous amounts of copper to go in those those cables, taking them out to shore. It's providing the copper that we're going to have in electric cars, the same hole. But if we are going to fulfil all of those promises we have in the future to, to electrify everything, to have the wind turbines, to have the hydrogen economy, all of that, you need enormous amounts more electrical infrastructure, you need the electric cars, and for all of that, we're going to have to mine more copper in the coming decades than we ever have yes. since the dawn of humanity. Since the dawn of humanity. So that means many more enormous holes in the ground. And the big question in the future is whether the places that have the copper are going to be quite so willing to, to have those big holes in the ground at the moment. And if you look at the, the pipeline for future mines, I think there is a very big question mark as to whether it is enough to fulfil the enormous demand we're going to need if we're going to keep these promises. Ed, you also talk about oil and gas, and you underscore that energy is, is more or less everything, and yes. that the prosperity that many in the world enjoy is absolutely built on the burning of those fossil fuels, which have, which have been cheaper mm. and cheaper. But something that we think about much less is that the petrochemical industry has all sorts of byproducts, and we use mm. them in all sorts of ways. We use them to make food. We use them for plastics. Yes. We use them for paints and adhesives, all sorts of mm. things. I recently saw a protester wearing a T-shirt in London at one of these protests saying, you can't eat oil. Um, and actually, the great irony is you can and we do, because pretty much everything, well, I mean, oil, I, I, oil and gas, pretty much every kind of food, apart from organic foods, is produced with fertilizer, mostly nitrogen fertilizer. And how do we make nitrogen fertilizer? You make it by getting the nitrogen from the air. And how do you get the nitrogen from the air? You need hydrogen. And where do we get the hydrogen from? We get the hydrogen from natural gas. So every bit of nitrogen fertilizer, and like I say, if it wasn't for nitrogen fertilizer, half the population of the world, more than half the population of the world would be dead. We would not be able to support half the population of the world. They are here. We are able to support humanity 
thanks to these fertilizers. And the reason that we have these fertilizers is because of natural gas. And by the way, you could make it with oil and you can make it with coal. We used to make it with coal. So it's the same thing. You know, fossil fuels are keeping us alive. It's not just that they are the things that we most people put in their car and that a lot of our energy grids are powered on. They are literally keeping us alive. And in future, you know, we will be able to come up with ways of doing it in a green way. And we kind of know in theory how to do it. It's really energy intensive. You need to, you know, use green hydrogen, which is takes a lot of power to make. But right now, you know, in this world that we inhabit right now, you can eat oil. We do eat oil. We eat them oil and natural gas. And that's before you kind of talk about the the oil that we're using or the, the gas we're using to to keep the greenhouses uh, that we're kind of that our fruits are grown in uh, to keep them warm. All of these things depend on fossil fuels. You know, no one likes to talk about that because it's one of those awkward truths about the world we inhabit right now. No one wants that to be the case long into the future. So we do need to come up with a way of of dealing with that. But we need to understand the world we inhabit before we understand the world that we want in the future. That's the thing. Mm. And I just don't think our understanding of the world right now is quite as sophisticated and as widespread as it could be. And I think it's a wake up call. I think we need to understand the complexity and the nuance of this sometimes dirty, sometimes amazing, really promising a lot of the time, but sometimes depressing world that we inhabit. And then that's why I think... We need to think in ter- from the perspective of materials because that gives us a fresh perspective. Yes, yes, it's a way of framing um, it, isn't it? You, your last material is lithium, which, of course, is we hear a lot about at the moment and we do a fair bit and we want to do a lot more mining of it here. But at the moment, I was thinking about this last night, the price is down. It's way down and it underlines mm. how commodities, and, and these are all commodities, have these boom and bust cycles. And even though we're going to need a lot more lithium in the foreseeable future, much more lithium, much, much, much more lithium. At the moment, we've got miners going out of business because the price isn't there. Yeah, and I think mining has always been one of those one of those businesses that has a massive boom-bust cycle, um, the capital cycle it's sometimes called, just because, you know, you have these periods where everyone gets terrified that you're going to run out of something, and then it turns out you have a lot of capital investment going into it. And then actually you've got loads of it. And right now, a lot of people are looking at the pipeline of coming lithium projects and saying, well, actually, we're going to be fine. You know, there's, there's plenty of lithium. But the the sequencing is the tricky thing. You know, it's about getting enough lithium when you actually need it. The amazing story of in lithium in the last 10 years is Australia, because for a long time, that mining was dominated by Chile. But the way that they mine lithium in Chile is very slow. It's just by, slow by necessity because they they are essentially taking brine out of the ground and, and slowly evaporating it over time. And you can only evaporate so much at any given period under the sun. Whereas in Australia, you've got hard rock and you can take that hard rock and at the moment basically send a lot of it off to China where it gets refined. And that's just a far quicker way of turning lithium into the ground, into lithium that could go into batteries. The issue, of course, with it, as you know, is that it is a more pollutive way of doing it because mm. in China, they are using a lot of coal to do that refining. And so that is, in inverted commas, dirtier lithium than the stuff that's coming out of out of South America. But the yo-yoing of, of the lithium price is a reminder that when you're in these kind of, I guess it's like an industrial revolution, you do have moments of, of you know, fear and greed. And you do have episodes where people think that they're, they're plunging a lot of money uh, and you're having hysteria going into certain sectors and there's going to be busts again in the future 
And I think we're going to have plenty more of those those yes. panics to come as people realise that there's going to be horizons where it looks like everything's sorted and then suddenly, oh, it's actually going to be more difficult than that. And you're seeing it, you don't just see it in lithium, you see it in things like sustainable aviation fuel, you see it in hydrogen. There's going to be so many more moments like that to come. But that, I think underlines like the the nature of the period we're living through at the moment you know we, we are living through an industrial revolution and it's the first it is a really unique moment because every previous revolution like this so in this case think about energy transitions when we went from wood to, uh, to coal and from coal to oil and from oil to natural gas in each of those we became a lot more efficient and we went to higher density fuels so yes. life got easier in this case the challenge is we're shifting from something that is very energy dense, like oil and gas, it contains a lot of energy in every ounce of it, to something that is much less energy dense, lithium ion batteries, that's your store of, of energy. That's an enormous challenge. But a challenge like that involves having to innovate in a way that we haven't innovated for, for many decades. So I think what most people kind of agree, whether they agree on the, the climate science, the, the challenge of net zero demands so much of technology that if we are going to get to it, we need to invent all sorts of extraordinary stuff. You know, I work as an economics journalist, and I, the thing that people have moaned about in my world for years and years is, where's the productivity? You know, they moan that we're st stuck in secular stagnation. There's not enough growth, especially in Europe and, and in the US. Well, you could hardly have a better opportunity, at least in certain sectors, for productivity than forcing people to rethink the entire basis of industrial society, which is essentially what we're doing here. Because everything, when, when we make anything, there are carbon emissions. We need to rethink how to do all of that. Mm. And whatever you think about the logic of that, it is a really, really big economic challenge. And when there are big economic challenges like that, often there are big opportunities to make money. And so a lot of people are making money. And that's what's motivating business. Um, but there will be booms and busts. Well, you mentioned uh, in, right at the end of the book, and I've only got one more question, but rights law, which is more or less that people learn from experience and get better at doing things. And that has mm. been our story, really. And mm. hopefully that will apply over the next 30 to 50 years. But the other mm. thing that I got out of it right at the end, Ed, was this idea of reshoring, which mm. has become very politically kind of potent so that a country isn't dependent on a supply line it cannot control. And after reading the book, it is pretty clear that whatever a politician says, it's very difficult to kind of unscramble the egg on that. The more I kind of delve into supply chains, and, and, and in a way the scary thing is that our understanding of the, these chains that are, are responsible for pretty much every gadget you touch on any given day, our understanding of those chains is really primitive. And even actually, it's I was talking to people who really know about this just the other day, and they were saying, despite the fact that we've actually been talking about this now for like five years or at least since covid in a sophisticated way it's not like we have a map no one's got a map of this stuff we don't know and it, like you say yeah unscrambling that egg is i think it's tantamount to impossible and it's you know we're seeing a little bit what happens when a country like russia kind of get divorces itself from from the western uh sphere of economies but you've got to kind of multiply that by, you know, a thousandfold when you're thinking about China, just given how much it is in every supply chain you can think of. You know, every little tiny, tiny, infinitesimally small bit 
of every gadget you touch. There's probably a fair few of those bits that come from China. And no one making those gadgets is absolutely sure where they come from. And I say that, you know, having spoken to people who run these supply chains, they are still just trying to work it out. And every time they do look deeper, they realize there is more integration than they appreciated there was in the past. So in some ways, that's something to be reassured by, I guess, because we are so completely intertwined with each other that there's an enormous cost to trying to disentangle that. And I think the Chinese get that. And I think they get that because they have been thinking in these terms for a lot longer Mm. than we have. In Australia, you know, of all the kind of the Western economies is further along than many in terms of starting to think about such supply chains, I think perhaps because of its proximity to China. But frankly, we're still way behind uh, in understanding the architecture of these things. Well, I think I understand things a bit more after reading the book. Ed, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Ed Conway is the economics editor of Sky News in the UK. His book is Material World, a substantial story of our past and future. The money comes to you from Gadigal Land, Sydney. It's produced by Kate MacDonald. Our sound engineer is Beth Stewart. I'm Richard Aidey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.